Welcome to the Stuttgart Missional Community Church Sermon Podcast. SMCC is a multicultural church serving the English-speaking community in Stuttgart, Germany. For more information or to contact us, visit us on the web at smcchurch.net. That's smcchurch.net. This is a story that we grow up learning, right? If you were brought up in the church, and even I, was, I wasn't brought up in the church, but I knew this story, this magical night, Jesus is born, and, and you know, I think we've, we've kind of deviated from the text a little bit regarding the story around Jesus, and we've romanticized it a little bit, but... You know, I just I was talking with Stacy this week, you know, because there was an article that we were reading and it was, you know, talking about the actual, you know, how things actually happen at the day of Jesus birth and I was like, "Ah, I get it." You know, I don't care. <laughs> I love the romance. I love this story, right? I love this story. And does it really matter all the nuanced details about when Jesus came and was born? You know, was it summer? Was it winter? Was it in a stable or in a house or all these things, what really matters, the central truth of the story is Jesus, who is God, was born into humanity. The creator became the creator to save his people from their sins. This is the heart of the story. And today we're going to go over the, we are going to go over the historical context a little bit of, of where the world was and how Jesus entered into history. So in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, it says this about uh, the times in which Jesus was born. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went down to their own town to register. So Joseph, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He was there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Today, we can divide, and we've been looking a lot at the promise. You can really, the, the Bible can really be separated into promise and fulfillment. And today, we're going to talk about both historically, because while I just think there are still people who attend church all the time who are not quite convinced Jesus is Lord. Jesus is exactly who he said he is. And we, if we look at the Old Testament, we look at the prophecies of Jesus, we see the promises of him who is to come. And we see this starting in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, where we see Jesus is being promised to come as, as God is speaking to the serpent. And he says, you shall bruise, uh, you, he will crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a prophecy talking about Jesus, but there are so many more. Hundreds of Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. This was written 700 years before Jesus was born. God said that the answer to the sin problem is coming through Emmanuel, God with us. 
And we will know that he is Emmanuel because he will be born of a virgin. Now, virgin birth during this time, the claim to virgin birth was not unique to Jesus, right? And so if, it, if you just, if this, the whole thing hinged on this prophecy alone, there would be reason maybe to doubt. But this is not the only prophecy fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. There are tons of them, and we're not going to go through them all, but some of the most significant ones. But one way we will know is that Jesus will be born of a virgin. virgin. And Micah wrote, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Again, written 400 years before Jesus' birth. And this tells us that Jesus pre-existed history, that he is from ancient, he is from old, that he is God, he predates Abraham. And, and saying this would have been staggering to the Jews. God is coming to answer the sin problem once and for all, and he will come from Bethlehem. This is the prophecy. Some other prophecies. Jesus will come from the line of Abraham, prophesied in Genesis 12, fulfilled in Matthew 1. Jesus will be a descendant of Isaac and Jacob. And you might think, oh, duh, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But don't forget, we also had Ishmael and Esau, and Jesus won't come from them. And that was prophesied in Numbers 24 and fulfilled in Matthew 1. Jesus will be called out of Egypt, prophesied in Hosea, fulfilled in Matthew 2. Jesus will be a member of the tribe of Judah, prophesied in Genesis 49 and fulfilled in Luke 3. Jesus will enter the temple, and this is really important because the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And this, this alone points to the significance of the birth of Christ. I mean, we totally, the world finds their calendar revolving around this event. But the, Jesus would enter the temple and he will come in this point of history. And then a few, maybe 30 years after Jesus entered the temple, it's destroyed and never rebuilt. This is prophesied in Malachi 3 and fulfilled in Luke. Jesus will be of the line of, of King David, Jeremiah 23, fulfilled in Matthew 1. Why, is all, why are a lot of these lineages fulfilled in one? Because Matthew 1, that's where we have the lineage of Christ, right? Jesus' birth will be accompanied with great suffering and sorrow. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, wrote that in chapter 31, and it's fulfilled in Matthew 2. Jesus will live a perfect life, die of crucifixion, resurrect from death, ascend into heaven and sit at the right hand of God, prophesied in Psalms 22, Psalm 16, Isaiah 53, Psalm 68, and so on and so on and so on. Why am I making such a case for Christ? Because it is important that we don't secularize this day, right? This is the day our Savior was born. And as, again, Stacey and I were talking a lot this week, and uh, if, you have, if you come from a non-Christian background and you're one of the first Christians in your family, you might understand this a little bit more than somebody who was raised in a Christian home and it always celebrated Christmas and, of course, it always pointed to Jesus. But you will find that the world is celebrating Christmas today and in a couple days they'll be celebrating Christmas too. Those who don't have a relationship with Christ, who don't know who Jesus is and definitely don't serve him as Lord, they'll be celebrating Christmas too, but for a completely different reason. For a completely different reason. It, is Christmas about family and friends? Yes. Is it about good food? Yes. My wife made 144 sugar cookies yesterday, and now there's 30 left. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I couldn't believe it when she was done. The entire kitchen was covered in 
sugar cookie glory. It was awesome. Uh, but yeah, it's about good food. It's about friends. It's about, yeah, it's about giving gifts. It's, it's about all of that. But for the Christian, what is central is God became man to save his people from their sins. And you can celebrate Christmas without that. You can, but that's not why we celebrate Christmas. Jesus is Lord. And there is, there is a lot of evidence. There are 66 books in the Bible, and some of them written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Fulfilling prophecies, a sign to us that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God told us what to be looking for, and in Luke chapter 2, we find that the stage is set for Jesus to enter into humanity. But what was this world like when Jesus came? Israel was under Roman rule. The Roman Empire was one of the most prominent, long-standing, far-reaching empires in the history of the world. The Roman Empire had reached even into Germany, right? Just, I mean, you can go as far as Trier and see Roman baths and Roman ruins. That's up by Kaiserslautern, if you don't know where that is. That's way far north. The Roman Empire had to keep spreading. They had to keep growing because they had to keep expanding into getting new resources to fund and feed the people of the Roman Empire. And as soon as they stopped expanding, they imploded. But right here, right now, they find themselves in Israel, ruling over um, Israel. Augustus Caesar was the ruler, and he was the grand nephew of Caesar Augustus, excuse me, of Julius Caesar. And he was adopted by Julius Caesar and given, given the inheritance of becoming the supreme emperor of the Roman Empire. He's actually a pretty benevolent ruler of the time. And uh, his name means the majestic or highly revered. Now, he had a governor working for him or a cabinet member named Quinerius, and he was kind of there to execute the will of his emperor, various policies and decisions that were being made. And they were taking a huge census. Two reasons that leaders took census in these times were wealth and power. Wealth, because if you knew where everybody was and you knew how many people there were, you knew how much tax revenue you could exercise from them. So in that way, it's not that much different from our own census, right? And power, because you always have to know how many adult males you have who can fight in case you want to invade or you need to defend your kingdom. So the census was being taken for tax purposes and power. And Mary and Joseph were part of this census, and they went to Bethlehem. We don't really know exactly why they returned to Bethlehem. Uh, now, the Bible tells us because they had to, but there's a lot of historical evidence that says, well, not really. You didn't have to travel back to your hometown, just like I don't have to go back to Rockford, Illinois, thank God, to uh, you know, have my, my numbers counted in the census, right? I mean, it, but they nonetheless were going back to Bethlehem. And Joseph was a carpenter, a normal guy, Mary, a normal, very young woman, somewhere between the ages of 13 and 17 years old at the time of Jesus' birth. Can you imagine her reaction to this news? I mean, our little video here, you know, she was surprised for sure. But being pregnant and being unmarried carried huge con consequences in the ancient world, and especially being a 
pledged to a man. That's virtually being married. So this had huge implications. And they traveled to Bethlehem, probably in her seventh month of pregnancy, about 100 miles distance by, by mule. Mary is about eight months, probably arriving, maybe around eight months pregnant, between seven and eight months pregnant, and they find meager accommodations. Again, we could deviate from the story. There's arguments whether or not Jesus was really born in a stable or not, or was he in a, a guest house somewhere. But regardless, they find very meager accommodations, not accommodations that we would expect the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to enter by. And we know that Mary probably wasn't traveling in her ninth month, right? I think you can't even fly on an airplane past seven. Is that right? Can somebody help me out here, right? About seven months. So it would be grossly irresponsible for Joseph to take his wife, who is nine near nine months pregnant on this journey, right? We think she's about seven months pregnant during this travel. That still doesn't sound like a piece of cake to me. But we know this because in Galatians 4 and 4 and 5, it says this, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Things weren't looking good for Israel or for Mary and Joseph, but this was the chosen time. And in the fullness of time, when Mary was ready to give birth, she gave birth to the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. God had orchestrated the most significant entrance of all time, the birth of Jesus Christ. And at the time, I'm sure it didn't seem as such. Looking back, we look at this wonderful night, this glorious night of Jesus' birth. But at the time, there was a young woman who probably felt alone giving birth in a in a in very a very meager place with Joseph by her side it probably didn't seem like the most significant entrance of all time it probably seemed very plain and ordinary but it was the night of our savior's birth most of us know this story kids know this story we grow up seeing this story on the Charlie Brown special when Luke 2 is quoted but what does the story mean, and what is the significance for us today? I think the significance of Christ's birth first is that we learn that Jesus is like us. He is like us. He was born into humanity, experienced life as one of us, and as the child in the video said, he probably pooped. He experienced everything that we experience as human beings. John Stott, a British theologian, said this, In a world filled with suffering and pain, I could not fathom worshiping a God who is immune to it. Jesus understands our suffering. He understands our pain. He knows what it's like to be betrayed and abandoned. He knows what it's like to suffer and die. Jesus knows our pain. He was ridiculed, shut out, rejected, and, bro and broken. Hebrews says it like this, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We don't have a priesthood. We have a high priest. You and I are exactly the same. We serve one God, one King, one Lord, one Savior, our High Priest, Jesus Christ, who is familiar with our struggles. It's not that, it's not that having a priesthood 
and is necessarily evil, it's this, it's unnecessary. It's unnecessary. Access to God is granted to every follower of Jesus Christ. The curtain has been torn in two, and that, that dividing line, that separation of the holy and, and what we would consider the plain, ourselves, has been torn asunder because you and I, not only has Jesus taken our sins upon himself, but extended to us his righteousness. And in this way, Jesus is unlike us. This way, this is also what this is also very significant, which makes Jesus special. It's encouraging because he is like us, but it's also encouraging because he's unlike us. In Hebrews, it continues to say in chapter 7, such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. And verse 27 says, he sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. We cannot look at the manger without the shadow of the cross. We can't look at the birth of Jesus and celebrate it accurately without having in mind and in view the cross of Jesus Christ. He truly was born to die. He was on a mission from the moment he entered into humanity. And because Jesus was tempted and never sinned, he's able to say to us, I know how to get you around this. I avoided this myself. When we do sin, he says, I said no to sin, and I died for your sin, and I'll forgive you. I'll get you out of the mess you're in and change your whole life so you won't go back and do it again. See, our friends, they can sympathize with us. Our family can offer us advice, but Jesus alone has the power to change us. Jesus has the power to change us. Amen. And Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Christ has given us peace within. We've been given His righteousness. And this guilt that we bear for our sins has been alleviated through Jesus Christ because He bore the sins of the world upon His broad shoulders. And He gives us His righteousness. And because of this, we can have peace within. We can cast aside anxiety, fear, and doubt and rest in Him. This is why the psalmists and some of the apostles wrote, What can death do to me? Why should I fear death? And as a believer in Jesus Christ, none of us should fear death. Because to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. And this promise will be fulfilled as well. And we can cast our fears and our doubts and our, our, our uh, anxieties aside, resting in Him. What can this world do to us? Nothing. Nothing. Christ has also given us peace with others. In this way, He is the Prince of Peace. The Gospel gives us the ability to experience healing with others. If, you've, if you find it very easy to forgive and you're not a Christian, then I would say that you've probably never really had anything significant to forgive. This is just me talking here. This is not in the gospel here. Because if you've had significant trauma in your life caused by others, and you don't have the forgiveness of Jesus in your heart, you find it very difficult to forgive. 
But because we have been forgiven such a great debt ourselves, we find it much easier to extend forgiveness. Much easier. I, I wouldn't say easy. I still wouldn't say easy because we're still limited by our humanity and our human understanding. And I think Jesus alone and God alone has the power to forgive and forget. We can forgive, but we find it very difficult, if not impossible, to forget. But because of what Jesus has done in us and the forgiveness that we've received, we are able to forgive others. And if you're struggling with this today, as a Christian, you're struggling with forgiveness. And every Christmas and every holiday brings up feelings of betrayal in your family or through friends, and you, you are still holding a grudge, I would say this to you. Get a hold of what Jesus has done for you. Get a hold of the grace extended to you in Jesus Christ. Because each one of us deserves judgment, but we have found mercy in Jesus Christ. We have found forgiveness in Him. Thank God we do not get what we truly deserve. It is the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ extended to us that allows us to live free and happy lives. It is that internal peace that separates the believer from the rest of the world. It is that eternal, that internal peace with an external peace with others that demonstrates it to the world. It's not perfect peace. That perfect peace won't come until we're in the presence of the Lord, but it is a shadow of that peace. It can, it is a significant part of that peace. And most importantly, Christ has given us peace with God. And you think, well, I was pretty okay with God even before I became a Christian. No, you weren't. No, you weren't. The Bible tells us that we were rebellious, that we were heathens, that we were in outright rebellion against our Creator, and therefore underneath His wrath. Now, there's a day that is coming, and... I don't want, I'm going to risk being a fire and brimstone preacher just for a second. Because there is a day coming when judgment will be carried out. And it's only through his mercy and through his grace that it's not today. Amen? But judgment is coming. And for those who have accepted Christ, let me tell you what's happened in reality. Judgment is coming, but you have already accepted that judgment. And you have pled guilty. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have pled guilty to your sin. And you've asked Jesus to forgive you. You've asked for leniency. You've asked for mercy. And that decision has already been made. So when Jesus comes to judge the quick and the dead, the Christian will not face that great white throne of judgment of heaven or hell because you've already declared yourself guilty. You've already said, I'm guilty. I need Jesus I accept Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. He is the propitiation for my sin. He took he, his atoning sacrifice. I receive it. So we'll be, well, now our works will be judged. But can you imagine facing that judgment on your own merit today? Can you imagine standing before Jesus, standing before the judge of the, the living and the dead and saying, no, I've lived a pretty good life. Church, I want to tell you that there is a majority of people outside these walls, and that's exactly what they're counting on. I've lived a pretty good life, but we all know our lives. We all know that we're under the wrath of God, and it's only by mercy that we are forgiven. It is that peace with God that allows us to truly live this life. He has not only forgiven us, He's not only extended to us righteousness, but He has adopted us as sons and daughters. 
This is the peace that the Son of God brought. This is the peace that came out of this meager birth into humanity. So what should our response be? What should we do on Christmas? I mean, is it enough to go to Christmas markets and have candy canes and celebrate? What should we really be doing on Christmas? Well, one thing I would say that we ought to be doing is worshiping. We ought to be worshiping God, worshiping Jesus. He alone is worthy of our praise. And I know that many of you would say amen to that, but cat's got your tongue. I get it, okay? Many of you would, you would agree with this statement. But do we demonstrate it? Are we willing to look like fools for Christ? Are we willing to raise our hands and shout from the mountaintops, Jesus is Lord, and if necessary, sing it with others? Are we willing to worship God? Are we excited about what Christ has done? Do we want to live for Him? Do we want to be more like Him? Are we full of thankfulness? Are we full of praise? Do we trust Him? This is all worship. Our worship is manifested in what we do every single day. For the world, they'll celebrate Christmas. It'll be a time of trees and candy canes and Santa Claus. But for the Christian, in essence, it should be like every other day. Truthfully, it should be like every other day. We shouldn't just be on our best behavior on Christmas, right? We should be worshiping the Lord of Lords and King of Kings every single day. I think what, Je- what would Jesus think of what we make of it, right? I think, I think Jesus would be honored with how we celebrate Christmas. But I think we bring dishonor to Christmas if we only act like Christians once a year. Amen? Amen. He's called us to live for him every single day, to make worship part of our daily life. And worship is manifested by definition by what we do. Amen? We're not saved by what we do. We're not saved by works that we could earn salvation. It's the gift of God. It is the first and greatest gift, the gift of Jesus Christ, a gift that sits under the tree for many, for millions of people every single year waiting to be opened. But this great gift that Jesus has given us, this salvation, it's evidenced in our lives by how we live our lives, by how we worship Jesus every single day. It's also, I think, a proper response is action. By the Holy Spirit's enablement, we follow Jesus. We don't separate from the world just waiting for Jesus to come back. I think the church is largely guilty of this. We gather together, and we have these four walls, and it's good, it's safe here, and we don't really think that much about going out, out into the world and, and preaching the good news. When we look through the Bible, when we look through the New Testament, we rarely see anyone, anyone who's encountered Jesus, from the woman at the well to the blind man to the lepers, anyone who encounters Jesus can do nothing but go and tell people about Jesus. I've met the Son of God. No matter how embarrassing it is to them, no matter what they're going through, they went and made Jesus known. This is the natural response to anyone who has encountered Jesus. If you're an introvert, natural response. If you're an extrovert, more natural response, okay? But either way, when you were blind, now you see. When you were lame, now you walk. You can't do anything but tell people about Jesus. This is the natural response to encountering the good news of Jesus Christ and encountering the person of Jesus Christ. We share the good news. It is the calling of every single 
Christian to make Jesus known. And you think, well, I mean, don't we, doesn't America know? Doesn't Germany know? Doesn't the Western world know about Jesus? And the answer to that is no. N-O, not K-N-O-W. All right? No. Less than 3% of all of Europeans, or around 3%, are evangelical Christians. Have heard a true, accurate representation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's staggering. And in the U.S., I mean, while 70 or 80% of the United States may claim to be a Christian, when you ask them quantifying questions, when you try to quantify that answer and what it really means to follow Jesus, that number goes drastically down. See, there's no, well, I'm a Christian, that's, that's who I am. There's no, there's no cultural Christianity, there's no marginal Christianity. You are, Jesus is Lord of all or he's Lord of nothing at all. Period. And that may seem radical and fundamentalist and crazy, but that's the truth. And it's, it's outlined in God's Word. That is exactly what it means to follow Jesus. Radical obedience. Radical obedience. Also, our response to Christ's birth should be service to others. Serving and being generous. I think about how generous it was for our Creator to leave heaven. Leave heaven voluntarily and go through everything we go through. And more. To know that. To, to leave heaven and know what awaits Him. I mean, how incredibly generous. In every other major religion, it is us, it is humanity trying to reach up to God. God, Jesus Christ, left heaven and came down into humanity. We saw this in Jacob's ladder a few weeks ago as we talked about Jacob's dream of angels ascending and descending on a ladder. We see that the Son of God leaves heaven and comes and becomes part of his creation. The significance of this, I think, is largely lost on us. He spoke you and I and the heavens and the earth into existence. And then we betrayed him. We rebelled against him. We choose our flesh. We choose ourselves. And he still loves us enough to come and suffer and die our punishment on the cross. A horrible, horrible punishment. If you've seen the passion of the Christ, you get a glimpse of perhaps what it looked and felt like. But it was in truth even worse than that to suffer and die on a cross. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. But make no mistake about it, we can't go through Christmas, we can't go through the holidays, we can't hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and not have a reaction, not make a decision. Like I said, either Jesus is Lord of all or he's Lord of nothing at all. And today, you decide whether he is Lord of all or Lord of nothing at all. Either Jesus is who he says he is, and he did what he said he was going to do, and now he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, making intercession continually for you and for, I, for myself, or he was a lunatic. Period. That's your two options. There's no gray area. And if he is Lord of all, and he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, then radical obedience to his word is your only option. Period. Now, I say this at risk of making you uncomfortable, and maybe you never coming back. I understand that, because Christmas is a time when people come to church who don't normally come to church. I understand that. But if I just, if I just 
give you half-truths, then I am leading you to hell, not to heaven, right? I'm not leading you in relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm deceiving you and selling you snake oil to make you feel good, but really no cure in sight. Jesus is the answer. Radical obedience to him is our only option. Is Jesus Lord of all or is he Lord of nothing at all? If you've yet to unwrap the gift that Christmas is all about, it's sat under the tree every single year, this gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. I invite you this year to unwrap the gift. Receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. This is what Christmas is really all about. Jesus was born to die for you and for me. Amen. Thank you for listening to the SMCC Sermon Podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at smcchurch.net. That's smcchurch.net.